It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanier with Jim Cramer and David Faber. Futures are mostly steady coming off those record closes for the S&P, the Nasdaq, the Russell, the Dow Transports. Busy setup as this historic month for IPOs kicks in with the debut of DoorDash pricing at 102. Our roadmap begins with the IPO banner year. DoorDash is set to debut today. Pricing above the range, valuing the company at $39 billion. The CEO will join us exclusively this hour. Plus, those records for the market roll on. Futures pointing to a higher open. The S&P topping 3,700. And as COVID cases continue to surge with vaccine hopes on the horizon, Delta Airlines CEO is going to join us. It's a first on CNBC. Of course, we'll discuss his outlook for his troubled industry. Carl. All right, Jim, let's start with uh, DoorDash. You were just talking about it uh, with Andrew and Becky and Joe. Uh, Your point yesterday was great story, but be careful. Well, look, I, I think that there are a couple of things that are going in favor of it. There are people who uh, know the brand. When people know the brand, uh, the younger investors just say, you know what, get me some. Uh, I don't want them to lose what discipline they have because then we're starting to get into a 1998, 1999 period where they put market orders in and whatever price it, it, you get uh, may end up being the top price for the day. What I do think is important is people recognize that they're going to have easy comparisons for a little bit. But then, you know, when when people can start going out again, uh, they will choose to go out as much as they will use DoorDash. I don't think DoorDash goes away. I think that it's more of a duopoly than it's been before because of Uber Eats. Good business. Great business. I don't know. It it is still a delivery system. Uh, It's still uh, they've had to make a suburban. uh, They've made a suburban footprint, which is really brilliant. But, David, in the end. We know that the moat is only as good as the fact that they have low prices and they've got good technology. Right. Now, they've had very strong revenue growth. But to your point, Jim, this may be a unique opportunity that they've seen over this last, let's call it nine months in terms of growth. And the comparisons will get tougher. They've got to a year from now when hopefully we're all back to sort of normal behavior and people are not staying home quite as often and ordering in quite as much. Uh, you'd expect that that will reduce. It's going to trade at a multiple to revenues that is going to be double digits. Uh, I'm worried about that. You know, that. and I, I wonder how you view it from a valuation perspective. Obviously, great growth, huge market share, 50 percent, which yes. you do also have to wonder how much bigger can you get than that? Well, look, uh, the one thing is certain, Carl, is that this newer brand of investors I've been profiling on Mad Money have a lot of capital. A lot of people say, well, where did it come from? I don't want to even ask that. I just say they like things. And when they like things and they use things, actually the old Peter Lynch model uh, from Magellan Fund for a long time at Fidelity, they're willing to keep buying. Uh, look at, look at, uh, at Snowflake. I mean, it's, when I speak to Frank Slootman, he's not sure exactly who his investors are, but he knows a lot of them are retail investors. DoorDash is used by a lot of younger people, both in the suburbs and in the cities. So I think that you're going to see incredible enthusiasm. I wish that people would use limit orders, but that's, that is a parlance, Carl, that they don't understand. They don't get that. Yeah, yeah. It does sort of remind me, Jim, of another call out this morning, and that's from J.P. Morgan. They cut CrowdStrike. They cut DocuSign, they cut Okta, they cut Zoom, um, not because uh, the business is going to take a turn for the worse, but they say uh, uh, post-vaccine, you could see some of these high multiple names 
at least underperform the software industry average. Well, but I, mean, I read is, this is that, piece. Is that all part of a piece? Yeah, look, I, I did a piece last night about how uh, Octus, uh, one of the one of the favorites of this new cohort, uh, and it's up a great deal. I use that as I often talk about it on the show is being that's the one that you watch to see if there's a turn. They keep hitting the numbers, and the numbers are amazing, and the stock goes up every time. Uh, if they keep hitting the numbers, at what point do some of the people who work at Okta or some of the insiders at Okta say, David, we've made a lot of money. It's been a great run. Let's issue some stock because you haven't made a profit until you take it. That's true. That's true. Wait, but you said the insiders would sell, and then you're also talking about the company issuing stock, two separate things? Oh, no, no. Sorry. I'm saying when, when are the insiders? I'm thinking about the year 2000, Yeah. where the insiders said, you know what, this is pretty good prices here. Uh, but they haven't sold. I mean, it's oh, one the of the insiders have the sold. insiders. Okay, I thought you were bringing up the oh, idea no, of the no. company I, selling. You know, Todd McKinnon uh, is the CEO and he loves the company. And yeah. this new breed of investors, they don't the new breed of insiders, David, they just don't sell much. And it is rather incredible. They don't. And it's they don't ring a bell. And I can even look back now. I don't know what you would point to as the factor that turned things completely in 2000. Why we hit our high went on March 10th, 2000, and then went down more or less enormously from there. I mean, what was it at that point? Well, I thought you know, it was we just talked about oh. valuation for years. Well, we years. had offerings. I mean, man, Greenspan's comment was 96, wasn't I it? I know. I know. But we had rational <laughs> exuberance. We did have offering after offering after offering from insiders. And then the numbers came out and the numbers were bad. The difference here, for instance, I had Chewy on last night. Now, this is a stock that's just been red hot. I know it didn't go up huge after the quarter, but take a look at what it's done, for heaven's sake. And the insiders, they seem to love it. Uh, there's no cash out. They have such a b- level of belief. At the same time, we get Snowflake. Uh, who, are the, who are some of the largest shareholders of Snowflake? Berkshire Hathaway, no, not Warren Buffett, another fund manager. You've got uh, you have Mark Benioff in there. You've got some institutional names. And then you've got this weird thing that's happening where you, you get these stocks to a certain point that even the Tesla, for instance, gets added to the S&P. Rather amazing. And it's a capstone. Carl, back to you. <laughs> We're going to talk about Tesla later on this morning, guys. Uh, but first, uh, Delta is focusing on holiday travel, obviously, amid the pandemic, and as well as uh, how soon vaccines can get to the public. Let's get to Delta CEO with our Phil LeBeau today. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl. Let's bring in Ed Bastian from Delta's headquarters down in Atlanta. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're just announcing that you're going to be permanently waiving change fees for international flights. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but right out of the gate, I've got to ask you about the latest numbers from the TSA. Just 500,000 people screened yesterday. Uh, there is a concern, a, a, a serious concern within the industry that we're starting to see the slowdown, and people are going to say, that's it. I'm just not going to fly right now. Give me your take on, on business right now. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Phil. Good to, uh, good to be with you. Uh, the virus is our top concern, not just for our industry, but for our nation. And while our people are doing a great job of providing a safe travel experience for our customers, including blocking all middle seats through the end of March, uh, enforcing masks, making certain that every, every experience is, is clean before we take off, uh, the, the uh, virus is having an impact. Uh, customers are heeding the warnings. 
of government authorities, uh, the CDC uh, warnings have been important in that regard. Quarantine, stay-at-home restrictions you continue to see are out there. So I would expect that the travel we're going to be seeing for the upcoming Christmas period is going to be similar to what we've experienced over the last few weeks. We're currently at about one-third of normal traffic trends, and I don't see that changing here for the next couple of months. So that's the challenge. The good news is that with the vaccine on the horizon, uh, spring we know there's enormous pent-up demand. People are waiting to get back out again. And there's a promise that by, by March, uh, April, May, in that time frame, tens of millions of Americans will have been vaccinated and ready to get on with their lives. And that's what we're looking forward to. And the passenger levels are, are right now somewhere between, let's say, 63 and 70 percent, somewhere in that range, depending on the day of the week. Is that where you expected to stay leading up to uh, the Christmas holidays, end of the year holidays, and then in the first quarter when we know that it's always the slowest for the airlines? Or does it get even weaker? Do you see a drop down where we see passenger levels down 70, 75 percent? Well, we're in a period, the month of December, is, it's really two, two parts of the month. The first half of December traditionally is a very slow travel period, even in normal times. And we're seeing that with the, uh, with the current month as well. Uh, once we get through the middle part of the month, we do expect to see traffic uh, increase. Though, again, I, I'm not sure it's going to increase more than maybe a third of what it was a year ago. And then January should probably be another slow uh, travel month. We've raised the cash at Delta. We have over $17 billion in the bank. Uh, we'll get through these next few months. And I'm quite optimistic that by the time we get to the spring, we're going to be looking at a real resurgence of demand. People are ready to get back with their lives. Now, Ed, Jim Kramer, it's great to see you. You always come on no matter whether it's good or bad. And that's terrific. Uh, really interesting. You're talking good about adding, you, adding a voluntary contact tracing program for inbound international customers, which will provide essential tracing information directly to the CDC. How do you think that will fly? Because I think that that's precisely what we need in this country to make sure that we all feel more secure. Well, one of the things that's really important, Jim, is that we figure out how we reopen international travel. Uh, domestic uh, travel is, is moving. The, the, the trends aren't good, but we're, it's open. Uh, international is the biggest challenge that we have. We need to create quarantine-free lanes of traffic. And the good news of Delta is that we have done that. Starting next week, we'll be launching flights from Atlanta to Rome, as well as from Atlanta to Amsterdam. That will be quarantine-free meaning that customers will be tested before they get on board the planes. Those planes will be COVID-free as a result of that. And when they land in both Rome as well as in Amsterdam, they won't be subject to local uh, quarantine restrictions. So we've been working closely with the authorities both in Europe as well as in the U.S., the state of Georgia. Uh, tracing, which is a part of this, is voluntary for inbound traffic. But the CDC uh, is seeking information, and we support it, to be able to identify customers coming back into the U.S., whether it's a U.S. customer or an international customer, that in the event of a health uh, emergency, that they be able to notify customers. The important thing, Jim, in all that, though, is the Mayo Clinic, which has been our great partner throughout this entire pandemic journey, has told us with the trace, the, excuse me, with the, tr the uh, testing protocols we've put in place on these tests, the odds of someone being subject to a COVID transmission are literally one in a million. Wow. So the odds of, of anything happening on these flights are, are incredibly low. And that's what we're going to need to do to start reopening the world. 
Uh, Ed, it's David Faber. You know, when we talk about reopening, we talk about a return to normalization. Uh, many people focused on your industry also, though, wonder, what does the business traveler look like when we get to that point? Uh, given the ease with which they have been able to communicate via all sorts of different uh, technologies that perhaps were not really available or useful uh, that long ago. How do you view it? Do you see business travel ever coming back to the levels it may have had in 2019? I think it's going to take some time, David, but over the next several years, I do see it coming back. Uh, some video technology is, is here. Uh, it's going to continue to be used, no question about it, but it's not a substitute for relationships or doing business. It's a complement, and I think it'll be used in a complementary form. Uh, but business has to be done in person. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer of that. I think it's going to take a while before businesses are open again and customers are starting to see and take in visits from sales folks. Uh, but people need to get back out and to see their own uh, customers. Remember, uh, business travel is not only the big corporates. There's so many business travelers, many more business travelers. There are small business owners, uh, people that are out on the road. Those are the true road warriors every single day. They need to get back out and be with their customers. So today, our, our big customers are only back about 15%. I don't see next year it being any more than maybe you know, 40 to 50%. But it's going to take some time. Business travel has, has always rebounded. Uh, it takes a while to come back, but I think it's going to come back uh, before we know it. Ed, I looked into the uh, Rome flight. We have a business in Italy, and it seems like an extraordinary opportunity, even though uh, Italy is a little dangerous. But can you describe to people this testing process? Because I think if they knew about it, they would sure. be much more inclined to go to places. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's actually a, a relatively simple process, Jim. Uh, customers will be required to have a... Uh, PCR tests 72 hours in advance. We work with Quest, and we're giving customers the information where they can get those, uh, those PCR tests. When they arrive at the airport in Atlanta, uh, we will be supplying, at no cost to customers, a, a rapid antigen test. Uh, it's a 10-minute it's a test. It's the Abbott test. It will be supplied by the uh, Georgia Public Health Authorities. Uh, assuming they pass and, and, and they're clear from those two tests, they'll get on the plane. And when they land in Rome, the, uh, the Italians have the same, the same Abbott antigen test that they'll apply on a rapid basis. So while you're waiting for your luggage or waiting to depart the airport, you'll be given the opportunity to take that test. And assuming you're clear in all three tests, and you should, uh, you'll be free to, uh, to travel uh, in Italy as well as in, in Europe uh, quarantine free. Hey, Ed, if the rollout of the vaccine is smooth and happens quicker than many people are even forecasting right now, and you do see a surge in demand for the summer, how quickly can you bring the aircraft that you have parked back into service, get the crews in place, get the maintenance facilities uh, ready to handle that resurgence in demand that you're expecting? Well, we're already ready to go, Phil. We're, we're flying with load factors today that are probably about 40%, 40 to 45%. We're blocking middle seats, as you know, through the end of March. Uh, when it's safe, when the vaccines are out in large numbers, certainly we'll be returning those middle seats back to the market. So we'll have a lot of flying seats that, that we'll actually start to put customers back into uh, in the spring and the summer. So I don't expect at Delta there's going to be a huge increase in the number of aircraft or departures that are ready. We're ready to go. We've got the seats in the sky today. And one last question for you, Ed. Uh, as you look at the, the next three months or so, you have announced that you're going to be permanently waiving international change fees. 
there are skeptics out there who say, you know what, we've heard from the airlines who are saying we're getting rid of change fees, and it'll come back in a couple of years when business comes back. You're pledging that you're going to keep these wave, you're going to waive these international change fees for good, correct? Correct. They're 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 gone for good. Uh, we we were on this this path before the pandemic about eliminating friction points between us and customers and change fees being one of those. So when the pandemic hit, it was the perfect time to waive them because we don't want uh, just another reason for why customers are nervous about booking and making advanced travel plans. Uh, so any ticket that you purchase going forward from Delta and from any North American uh, destination, there will be no, no change fee uh, required if you decide to, uh, to change your plans, whether it's domestic or international. Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines, joining us from the Flight Museum down there. It's been a while since I've been down there, but uh, hopefully maybe in the first yeah, we, quarter, uh, second quarter. We need to we'll get, get you. We need to, yeah, we need, to get, we need to get you and Bob back down here, Phil. We will, yeah, Bob's right here. He's ready to go. We'll see you uh, hopefully in the next I'm, I'm, few months if things slow down uh, in terms of the uh, COVID-19. Carl, what's interesting when you listen to Ed Bastian, and I've heard this from a number of the CEOs, they believe that they have the liquidity in place to weather what's going to be a brutal couple of months in terms of travel demand. That's been key uh, all year long, Phil. Great interview, and it's going to be a good day when we get you back to Atlanta as well. Phil LeBeau, thanks so much. Lots to get to this morning. We'll talk some FireEye, some J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Disney, Apple, and Dwayne Johnson, the Hollywood superstar. We'll talk about the success he's having in the spirits industry, breaking some records with his tequila brand. That and a lot more. Straight ahead. <laughs> Making We're travel talking. plans. Why not? You have to listen to Ed Bastion and say, okay, let's go where, to Europe. Where can we go? I mean, you know, where can we go? once you get there, you kind of just hunker down. We're going to uh, go away together and hug. All right, but let's get to a mad dash uh, this morning. Lowe's is what you want to talk about. One of the things that's happened, David, is, is that people keep saying, when is this market going to go down? Well, when the bad news comes. But right now, we got good news. Yes, Marvin Ellison announcing a total home strategy. Says the numbers are good, could even be better. Comp store sales in the 20s. But then throws in a $15 billion common stock for purchase. And it's got a real strategy. We know that Marvin Ellison is so competitive. They've got robust levels of free cash flow. So, David, you, you come in and you say this stock is peaked. And we saw the uh, Toll Brothers go down. And people started talking about a housing peak. Well, go ahead. Why don't you go against the stock that's up 33% is buying $15 billion with an incredibly good CEO. This is the tale of the tape, David. You like this one and you like Home Depot. Oh, yeah. They're both very good companies. It's very unusual to have both really well-run companies at both places. You've got them. And Costco's well-run. And the trend here in terms of, I mean, even even if home buying were to slow, home repair and rehab and making sure everything's, that seems to be... People not have, going anywhere. People have discretionary income because they're not going out there and carousing uh, and, or going to sport events. Or, and, go, or traveling. Or traveling, right? There's, no, there's just so much discretionary income because we're a service economy, and the service economy is like, let's go to the Grand Canyon or let's go to Four Seasons, whatever. No, let's go to Lowe's. Let's make our place look better. Right. And, David, it's pretty good investment to get your house going up. Seems like it. Uh, yep. Seems like it. All right, we got a lot more coming up for you right here. Of course, that exclusive with the CEO of DoorDash on that company's initial public offering. Keep it here. Take a look at the uh, post uh, where DoorDash will make its debut today at the uh, New York Stock Exchange. Jim, you know, we normally talk about this when the IPO market heats up. To what degree does this 
uh, take oxygen out of the room. But I wonder if you think that's a dynamic this time. Uh, look, not yet. Uh, I think that uh, Airbnb and then we have Robin Hood. Uh, and then I think at that point, if people go on vacation and they do another deal, look out, there won't be enough money around. But right now there's plenty of money. Uh, and there's rapid money. I think there's money that basically says we don't really care what that opening price is going to be. David, that 102, 110, 130. You know, David, there's not going to be a lot of discipline in these market market uh, buyers. I mean, they're not going to put a price or limit on it. No, uh, there is expected to be a significant pop at the open at this point. We'll see. Sometimes we get surprised. We give you all of the data on how many times oversubscribed so many of these offerings are. But occasionally, remember Smile Direct? Well, could this be Uber? How about Uber? Oh, my God, of course, Uber. Remember sitting there as their smile started to sort of have (sighs) to be more and more forced as we watch that thing (laughs) trade below opening? Um, But in this case, that's not expected. I mean, early on, a half hour ago when I was checking, people were saying 130 to 140. Oh, come on, really? 130, 140. Yeah. Now, you got a lot of the people who are in the pre-IPO rounds who are investors who actually are getting access to the IPO. Why? Because it's sort of a, a tip. Hey, thanks for helping us out early. Here's an opportunity to flip some stock. So, you know, you got a little bit of that going on. People fighting for allocations as they always do. But we'll see where we open. It's, it's exciting, Carl. And that's a word that a lot of people fear. Excitement. I've been hearing it over and over again. I, get, I talk to people. People say, you know what? How do I get in? This is so exciting. Now, initially, excitement's okay, but remember what Lee Cooperman says, which is that the euphoria stage is always dangerous. We're not there yet. Uh, we still have lots of people want in, $5 trillion in the sidelines. <laughs> That's true, Jim. And there's some enthusiasm on the sell side on other names as well, which we'll talk about after the opening bell. Speaking of which, let's go to the NYSC. DoorDash, of course, celebrating its IPO today. And as we said, CEO Tony Hsu will join us in a couple of minutes. At the NASDAQ, it's Pubmatic, digital advertising technology company celebrating its own IPO. I thought of you this morning, Jim, because I know uh, Goldman's sell on Apple is annoying to you. Yes. But I also know that you don't like the term super cycle. Uh, and that's what Webbush does when they take it to 160 today. This fellow Ives, I mean, he's doing it, the coal super cycle. Oh, but the fracking sand super cycle. Don't put the jinx on a good situation by talking super cycle. That gets people too excited. David, it brings in a lot of people who just say, how can it go wrong? You know that's not good. You know that that kind of talk, David, has historically not been helpful for investors. No, it hasn't been. You're right. Uh, but doesn't mean they're not going to use it. Um, 5G super cycle. You know, but what kind of, what, you know, when you hear other things from, in, from, uh, from analysts, I mean, uh, for example, I will reference Tesla today, right? And we've got this report out this morning from J.P. Morgan talking about um, the addition of the stock to the, uh, to the S&P 500, which will take place on September 21st. Um, do people want to listen? December 21st. Did I say September? Thank you, Chip. Uh, I'm trying to do seven different things here. Right. Um, but here's the language they use, and I was just trying to get this up while I was talking there and sort of trying to uh, it, they say, listen, we don't recommend investors. We recommend investors not weight Tesla shares in their portfolios in equal proportion to the S&P because Tesla shares, in our view, and by virtually every conventional metric, not only overvalued, but dramatically so. For instance, Tesla trade, trades at 1,325 times the last 12 months P.E., and 291 times 2020's estimated, and 175 times the next 12 months. 
That's not stopping anybody, is it? No, they're not bound. These younger investors, of which, by the way, Robin is going to get a big valuation. They're not thinking like that, David. They don't care about earnings per share. They don't care about the whisper number. They don't care about what the relationship is uh, for uh, sales. They just believe. All right. And how has their belief rewarded them so far? Really well. Well, I rest my case. Really, really well. In fact, uh, since uh, December 8th, 2018, Tesla is up. 808 percent. It's created a lot of millionaires, Carl, and people people want to be millionaires. It's shocking. They want to be. I mean, I, I was dealing with someone who's an 18 year old last night and the 18 year old wants to have a very big allocation in Tesla. And I said, why? And the answer was because it goes higher, stupid. You know, I, what am I going to do? How do you how do you deal with that? How do you say, well, it can't grow to the sky and they come back and say, I bought it at 200. What the hell do you know? Why are you keeping me in my chains? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you making it so I can't make money, too? That's what I hear. Yeah, Jim. Uh, of course, uh, Musk yesterday talking to the Wall Street Journal in that live event, talking about the move to Texas and, and basically reiterating what he said to employees in that memo uh, earlier in the week or last week. And that is cost discipline is going to be the name of the game going forward as we get heightened competition from other players and new models uh, really coming out from others beginning next year. But you, uh, you watch NFL football. Do you ever see a Tesla? I uh, no? haven't seen one, no. Sell themselves. No. 500,000 yeah. cars, maybe if they could make a million, maybe and, and they could sell And to your point, them. the enthusiasm, Jim, is not just confined to Tesla. Take nope. a look at QuantumScape today. Oh, I'm There's working on QuantumScape. I'm working on it. There was... Uh, potentially, they said there was some news out, but it, it's not clear that it was new news. It has to do with the capacity of their batteries in the ability to uh, during 15 minutes to charge to 80 percent capacity. Now, yesterday, there was a press release out from QuantumScape that said their newly released results based on testing of single layer battery cells shows that solid state separators are capable of working at very high rates of power, enabling a 15 minute charge to 80% capacity faster than either conventional battery or alternative solid-state approaches. Remember, we had the CEO on when they, uh, when they closed their deal. Um, uh, what, that was November 12th. They said the same, th- they said the same thing. Right. It, uh, it's, it's, it's a short It's almost squeeze. identical, Jim, in terms of what they told us in the presentation that accompanied the, the moment that they actually closed their deal with the SPAC. I'm not, not clear to me what was new and what was released yesterday. Well, no. I mean, they, once again, they used the magic words, though, David. Next generation solid state batteries. And then you look, it's got a huge, unbelievably good investors. I mean, look at these Volkswagen people they've got. And they've got Stanford University. Anyone from Stanford not become a billionaire? I mean, you go to Stanford, you make a billionaire. It's my backup school. I rejected it. What an idiot. I could have been a billionaire. Uh, but you look at these guys, and they're all really fab and thin the CEO. He worked at uh, Siena. I mean, he's MS, MS Computer Science, David, in Stanford. How, I want to give every, I want to create a spack of spacks, Carl. Everyone who is computer science at Stanford. I want to give them money and then I want to go home. <laughs> spack of spacks. That wouldn't be a bad idea, actually. A spack of spacks. There's going to be an ETF of spack of spacks. Well, yeah. there will be. Oh, but yeah. look at these people. Volkswagen Roots and te- Tesla Roots. Carl, I mean, they have everything that you want. And the issue is... Yeah, but they're repeating press releases, basically. Well, the issue is they're there's no new stuff news. And, pretend, and it's saying it's new, and it's not really new. No, no, but... But it's enough it's to new, get it's new and improved, stock up David. 25% at It's like cereal. It's new and improved. I mean, but the guys have like $1.5 billion in committed capital, 10 years of R&D investment, 200-plus uh, patents, extensive trade secrets. Mm-hmm. David, this, these are the buzzwords 
that matter to the younger investors. And yesterday there was such a, a short squeeze, Carl, that I know anyone who's now listening to me is going to say, you killed the short squeeze. And then David, they're going to say, David, <laughs> David crushed quantum squeeze. Oh, yeah, Why? Because it. Look, he mentioned yeah. that there's nothing new. Yeah, the, we looked at the language they used and uh, it was unclear. Guys, uh, if we have what? just a, a 30 seconds, I want to hit an M&A situation. Uh, it was reported by Bloomberg. Baxter? and No, Omnicell. I don't know if yeah, you saw well, that. Baxter. Baxter. Oh, sorry. You did say Baxter. Uh, I, I was I, trying sorry. to be a little more specific. Yeah, Baxter. Uh, it was reported by both Bloomberg and Reuters uh, late in the day yesterday uh, that Baxter had made an approach to Omnicell. Omnicell, by the way, is a company that provides a range of services that help pharmacies, hospitals, other health care providers manage and dispense medication and engage patients to improve their adherence to that. There is definitely some overlap in their business, given, of course, Baxter has drug infusion systems, medication management, dispensing solutions. So you can imagine why. I can, what I can tell you right now is there certainly was conversation between the two CEOs. They did talk. And in fact, um, uh, there was a hope on the Baxter side that they would lead somewhere. At this point, it doesn't appear to. They got to know. They got to know. Now, they're mm -hmm. willing to pay at least 125. People familiar with the situation told me perhaps it would be even a bit more than that. But one thing they're not willing to do at Baxter, Jim, is to go hostile or pursue an unsolicited in the sense of trying to challenge for the board, the window for which, by the way, nominations open up uh, the later part of January. Uh, it's a classified board, so it's staggered. But you do have the CEO up uh, during that. But they're not going to do it. They're not going to go that route, I'm told. They're hoping that they can reengage in dialogue, but they did get a no initially. That may be all it is, simply a no. Uh, but again, we can tell you that they were willing to at least go to 125, if not a bit above that. Uh, given what they see as a real opportunity here. The stock, the company's sales have been hurt this year as a result of the pandemic, right. but are seen going up fairly substantially next year. So there you go. You got Baxter up because people think Baxter needs it, I guess, and has been uh, maybe not enough hospital work, and you had Omni sell up. I mean, David, yeah. what, what kills a stock? What uh, bad news sometimes does still. Does it? Yeah, sometimes. Really? Yeah, yeah really missing earnings in a big way. Like who? I don't know. Like when you have a growth rate that's incredible and a multiple that's unbelievable and you just totally screw a quarter up. But I don't know. I mean, not it's much. Just, Is that your point? Well, not just, much. You can't do much. Well, you know what? The people right didn't now. like the Slack deal. No, they that, didn't. that hurt sales force. What do you think of that $50 billion revenue number he's using for fiscal 26? Uh, Morgan though? Stanley's what said it doesn't Salesforce. move the needle or the guy yeah. like slams it. I mean, hey, look at this. Campbell's soup. It's down. <laughs> I thought it was a good quarter. You did? Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. You see? Some, there you there's go. Still some curiosity. I in thought it was a good quarter. Carl, stocks can go down. Stop trading. What can I say? Now it's going up. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us, Carl. I'm trying, guys. Uh, we'll take a break. As we said earlier, Tony Hsu, DoorDash, going to join us, and then Dwayne Johnson later on today. Uh, got some uh, record highs on the Dow, the S&P, Disney all-time high, 156. Don't go away. DoorDash pricing $102 a share last time. It's interesting. Everyone knows what DoorDash is. Valuing the company at $39 billion. Set to begin trading at the NYSC this morning. Here's a treat. Joining us now exclusively, DoorDash co-founder and CEO, Tony Hsu. Tony. First, congratulations. I know this is a huge deal. And it's not like you were uh, born uh, running big restaurants, but you were in the restaurant business when you started. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Jim. Uh, you're right. I wasn't born in a big restaurant. Uh, I was born um, really as a son to immigrants who came to this country to make a better life for me. 
And it's, you know, people like my mom, who we started this company for. My mom came to this country, worked three jobs a day for 12 years, one of which was at a local Chinese restaurant. And I got to see that a bit, uh, washing dishes on the side with her. And so um, it certainly is a big day um, for all of us at DoorDash. And it's a huge day um, for all of the businesses we serve as well. Tony, I think a lot of people interpret your company as being a delivery company. A guy comes, the woman comes to your door, uh, gives you the package, uh, contactless these days. But actually, you are a DoorDash platform that makes a lot of people money, uh, not just DoorDash. Absolutely. I mean, DoorDash is a platform whose goal is to grow and to empower local economies. We've been fortunate to have generated tens of billions of dollars of sales for brick-and-mortar businesses and billions of dollars of incremental earnings opportunities for millions of dashers. Really, if you think about what we're doing, we're bringing online for the first time many of your favorite local businesses that have never been able to compete in the convenience economy before. And so there's a huge economic transformation underneath all of us, and we're there, right there with them, bring them to the forefront. Now, I know it's a big day for you. I know that you really own the suburbs and small cities, but you did something I think was really special. I want to mention it because I think these are the things that we in the media have to mention. You introduced a new initiative to support black-owned businesses on DoorDash. Tell us about that. Well, DoorDash really is a reflection of all of the local communities that sustain us. And if you think about all of the turbulence that we've seen, certainly not just in this year, but frankly, in the past decade, uh, there's been a lot of change. And I think a lot of issues and topics are now getting the attention that they deserve. I think one of them has always been making sure that there's an equal playing ground for everyone. I've always believed that talent is evenly distributed, but access to opportunities isn't. And, you know, whether it's highlighting Black-owned businesses or our Kitchens Without Borders initiative that highlights immigrant uh, restaurant tours for the first time and giving them their shot just like everyone else deserves. That's really what DoorDash is about. Tony, it's David uh, Faber. A couple of quick questions about just the current environment uh, specific to the pandemic, which obviously has benefited your business. But we've seen a number of your key markets uh, pass uh, what they say are temporary laws to cap your commissions or your marketing fees at 15 or 20 percent combined. Uh, how is that affecting your business right now? Is there a concern, perhaps, that that will actually be extended when the pandemic is over? Uh, or are you able to sort of deal with it by passing it along to the consumer? Well, let me, let me start by saying that, um, just like everyone else, I wish that the pandemic is over or will be over soon. I mean, I, I truly wish that we would be having this conversation right now inside Jim's restaurant or inside one of the many fantastic local restaurants uh, in this country. So that that's re really my first priority, making sure with others to, to bring forth that solution. I, I think when it comes to merchants, certainly in the three decades that I've been observing the restaurant industry, this is one of the most difficult, if not the most dip difficult obstacle that I've seen restaurants um, to have to overcome. I mean, it's why, for example, we were the platform that cut 50% of our commissions at the onset of this pandemic, why we built products like daily pay so merchants can get um, their payments every single day uh, because liquidity is king in surviving a crisis. Um, it's also why we built many products so that there wouldn't even be commissions on them, whether it's DoorDash Drive or DoorDash Storefront, so that merchants can create more channels to, to be able to survive this pandemic. 
I'm super proud of a lot of the initiatives that we've built in order to allow merchants to have six times the odds of surviving the pandemic versus the average restaurant. And for me, it's really about figuring out, you know, how we're going to do that. Um, and how are we going to drive incremental sales? And, and, and that's why at DoorDash, we've always been more about making sure that we can help merchants grow out of this pandemic um, instead of, uh, you know, seeing um, uh, local officials and elected officials try to suppress the demand that go into these stores. Yeah. Do you ever see, though, pricing coming down for the restaurants? I mentioned it because there are a number in my area in New York City that encourage people to come and pick up their food themselves and get a bonus as a result of doing that so they can avoid services like yours because they're so costly for them. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, we do at DoorDash is we both have a marketplace in which we're, you know, bringing new customers for these restaurants for the first time, generating tens of billions of dollars of activity for them over the past several years that we've been in business. And the other part of what we do is we have a platform where we create products like DoorDash Storefront. Uh, that gives small businesses an online ordering solution that they can have that direct relationship with their customers. We build products like DoorDash Drive so that they can actually offer same-day and on-demand commerce to their own customers just like we do to ours. I mean, to me, this is about an ecosystem and about an initiative in which we're trying to bring online these businesses. I mean, only 10% of takeout sales in the industry actually happen through a digital connection. 90% of the time, we're still placing phone calls to get takeout orders. We're still driving, uh, uh, you know, to do pickups um, uh, through drive-throughs and, and the like. And so if you think about what's happening, we're creating a big transformation to help these businesses come online. And there's a cost to doing that. I mean, we invest hundreds of millions of dollars um, in marketing to generate business for these businesses. We pay billions of dollars um, to dashers uh, so that they can receive the incremental work opportunities that they desperately need, especially in times like the one we're in right now. And we also have to pay for uh, payment processing, customer service, and really take care of the end-to-end experience in order to serve these businesses. You know, look, I, as a when my, my restaurants are mothballed right now, but as a, a customer, can leave DoorDash, uh, the incremental gains are, are terrific and needed. Uh, one thing is certain, I mean, you're growing in part of that because at 200%, which is remarkable, it's even faster than Snowflake. But isn't it true, Tony, some people are going to say, well, they'll never make money. And yet at the same time, if I were in your shoes, I would like to spend as much as I can so that I have the big moat and no one can beat me. DoorDash has always cared about growth and profitability. I mean, in fact, it's why we revealed in our S1 the cohort economics, I think, that have demonstrated really what the business looks like under the hood. And you're absolutely right, Jim, that we're in the investment uh, phase right now because we're so early into the opportunity. I mean, if you compare this industry with others, 10% of restaurant sales are being delivered today. If you look at e-commerce, they're closer to 20% of total retail sales. And if you look at travel, over 50% of travel sales are now online. So we're playing in one of the biggest yet still most underpenetrated categories in the world. So right now, the time is really to invest. Tony, a year from now, it seems possible, if not likely, that your sales growth rate is going to slow dramatically given the incredible gains you've had this year because so many people are home using your service. If and when that happens, where are you going to be focusing people on to show that the business is still actually growing significantly? What metrics are you going to rely on to tell the positive story that I would assume you'll be trying to tell, let's call it six, eight months from now? 
Well, I, I think we have to think about where secular trends tend to go and, and what tends to happen once habits are formed. You know, certainly there will always be fluctuations in activity, and, and obviously with um, tailwinds, there will be changes to the business. At the same while, if you think about um, how we behave as consumers, uh, once we get used to a habit, whether it's buying things over the Internet, whether it's buying travel tickets now through a mobile app instead of through a, a phone call, we tend to stick to those habits. And when I think about this business over the long run, that's what we're investing towards. We're investing to add new use cases so that we can keep helping these businesses compete in the convenience economy. We're serving other categories like grocery and convenience so that consumers can get everything inside their city delivered to them in minutes, not hours or days. We're building more products so that merchants can build their own end-to-end -end tech stack and effectively not have to rely on us because that's how they're going to make it in the long run. And it's also how we're going to have a great business partnership for the long run. And we're investing in new geographies. So there's a lot of surface area that DoorDash um, has as a business today. And I think it really reflects a lot of the strong demand that we saw during our IPO process. Hey, Tony, a little more broadly, a uh, big story in New York this morning is this proposal to add a $3 tax on deliveries uh, to help fund the MTA. I know it's packages, but I wonder if you uh, fear that municipalities are going to say this is a big structural shift, it's a cash cow, it's a way for us to save our tax base, and it's going to test consumer price elasticity over time. Well, I think that governments um, have a very tough job to, to do. And I think that, you know, this is why at DoorDash, we care so much about working in concert with them and making sure that we can provide the best solutions um, for everyone, especially during a pandemic. And to me, when I think about um, something like commerce, the way that commerce helps grow GDP inside of a city or inside of a country is we have to maximize commerce. That's how we maximize the number of opportunities for everyone. And when we can grow the economy, that's actually um, how we get past uh, something as difficult as the pandemic. Tony, want to thank you so much for coming on Squawk on the Street. Congratulations on your very big day and all you've accomplished at a very young age. Tony Sue, founder, CEO of DoorDash. Great to see you, sir. Carl. Good to see you, too. All right, uh, Jim, we'll await that opening trade. In the meantime, later on next hour, we'll check in with Dwayne Johnson, talk about his new push into the spirits business, talk about competitive, along with, of course, the media landscape for the year to come. That's coming up in the 10 a.m. hour. Jim, we haven't mentioned uh, the Treasury Secretary's $916 billion proposal from last night. Yes, I spoke to him this morning, and I think it's got something interesting that people should listen to. $600 per child, $600 per adult, $2,400 checks right to you per uh, family for uh, four. And I think that this is something you're going to hear about, and people are going to say, wait a second, how can we not do this? How can we not give the country a holiday present when we are so beaten down and so many people are out of work? Is it the right unemployment figures for the Democrats? No. But I keep in mind, a check from the government is something that a lot of people may like, and I think there could be a little bit more of a groundswell over this proposal than others. And I think that's very, very significant and should not be ignored. $600 per child, per adult. People want it. They want it badly, yeah, Jim, Carl. It does seem like we're zero. 
zeroing in on uh, direct payments as opposed to state and local or yeah. liability insurance. Is that a fair trade? Yes, that's very true. And what I think people should know is, is that this could be money in their pockets. And I know that there are a lot of issues. I know that the uh, great, though, is the enemy of the good. I think most people in America say it's good to get a paycheck from the get a, an additional check from the government to augment their paycheck or if they've lost their paycheck for no reason whatsoever because of this darn pandemic. What can I say? Secretary Mnuchin this morning. uh, We're going to watch that. That's one of the uh, sub-themes today. Along with DoorDash, you're going to have a lot to work with tonight. Well, plus, I mean, talk about something that is hot button. We have Chevron. Uh, Mike, what's what's a guy going to do during a period when we have a president that is so deeply committed to uh, cutting carbon. Then Kevin Sayer, boy, there is a war over the glucose monitor. Abbott's got a real competitor now with Libre. We got to find out what Kevin Sayer saying. One of the great performers of this year. I can't wait for tonight. I can't. That's good. Oh, it's going to be excited. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jim. Look, and then we got Airbnb. I mean, come on, we all use DoorDash. These are common names. We didn't do AI. By the way, we didn't do AI. Tom Siebel's. I know. I love Tom. Uh, but the symbol alone should get them a huge pop. Well, how could AI not have been taken? I don't know, but how about when, how about when, <laughs> when Frank Slootman told me, because a lot of the younger people like Snowflake. They, they like they the like name Snowflake. Too. I mean, AI, like that would have been, that should have been go-to for Shouldn't have been. Yeah, so many of these Well, companies. what can I so say? So right David? there, I mean, they're, they're going to. Well, gonna, spack me. But yeah, we're going to keep an eye on AI too, Carl, this morning. Don't forget about that. And the Apple DoorDash, Super Airbnb, and Yes, the Apple. And all the Tesla bulls hate us on Twitter, by the way, Jim. Oh, everybody hates for us. For citing David. a J.P. Morgan report that <laughs> talked about simple valuation, saying we, we don't But Mark anything. Benioff loves you. Mwah. <laughs> Uh, it's a big love fest, guys. Jim, we'll see you tonight. Thank uh, you, Mad guys. Money, of course, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 